I want to read from the Word of God this morning from the book of Titus, way in the back of the, of the New Testament. I'm going to read from Titus chapter 3. Would you stand as we read the Word of God this morning? Here it is. I'm reading out of the New Living Translation this morning. It says, Remind your people to submit to the government and to its officers. They should be obedient, always ready to do what is good. They must not speak evil of anyone, and they must avoid quarreling. Instead, they should be gentle and show true humility to everyone. Once we, too, were foolish and disobedient. We were misled by others and became slaves to many wicked desires and evil pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated others, and they hated us. Then God, our Savior, showed us his kindness and love. He saved us, not because of the good things we did, but because of his mercy. He washed away all of our sins and gave us new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit on us because of what Jesus Christ, our Savior, did. He declared us not guilty because of his great kindness. And now we know that we will inherit eternal life these things I've told you are all true. I want to insist on them so that everyone who trusts in God will be careful to do good deeds in all the time. These things are good and they are beneficial to everyone. I, I just want to make a tiny moment's comment. I, I tell you what, I, I was eating uh, supper last night and watching the news and I, you know, I just became disappointed in uh, to watching our politicians. And I bet you're disappointed too. And to descend, in my opinion, to such a dark place. And um, I've noticed a lot of candidates no longer tell us what they're going to do. They don't even tell us what party they belong to. They just tell us what to, what to hate. And I think that's a descent into a place that I don't want to go. And I hope you don't either. We as people of the light do not descend to the dark. We shine light into the dark. And I'm just saying that. I'm just one guy out here saying it in the midst of 300 million some people in America. But uh, I just felt like I needed to be voiced this morning. I pray that we're not saying the things that are said. I can't change some of this, but I can change me, and hopefully we can share things here that can change you and how you respond to people who walk in darkness. So let's pray, shall we? Father, we thank you today for this amazing Lord's Day that you've given to us. Thank you for such great weather that has helped our farm families to get a lot accomplished this past week and it looks pretty good for next week and father we thank you for that we know that you're the provider of our needs and you knew that we needed good weather and we thank you for allowing that to happen and so father i pray that you will bless our families you are going to bless our church today and in just uh, extraordinary things and ways and so father we pray that you will touch through us uh a culture and a society that seems to continue to grow darker and darker. 
Father, I pray that you'll turn up the light voltage in our life. I pray that you'll help us truly to be the salt and light of our community, of our families, of this world. So, Father, I pray that you'll look down upon us and, and I pray that you'll bring forth the power and the work of your Holy Spirit to flow into our lives and across this church. We thank you now in the name of Jesus Christ the Lord. Amen. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 and uh, verse 13. I tell you what, if, you have not, if you're not familiar with our puppets, you're going to be in for a tremendous treat. This is not just entertainment or anything like this. They have a, they have a wonderful message. And it's one that you're going to, I think you're just going to find an immense joy connected with the message and everything else. You're going to love it. And we just, uh, we're just so thankful for them. It's going to be a good, uh, good Sunday, and uh, looking forward, Lori and her team uh, have worked very hard on this since really uh, probably early September, and uh, they're going to have a good, good thing. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. These are very, very familiar words to you. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. This is part two of a, uh, this is a kind of a two-part message. This is the concluding part of this message that I've titled Code of Ethics. Jesus invited his newly called disciples to join him on a Galilean hillside and the Bible says he sat down and began to teach them. And what he taught them was what we know today as the Sermon on the Mount. It begins in chapter 5 and goes through chapter 7. It is his longest teaching and perhaps his most familiar teaching. There's a subset of this teaching series that we call the Beatitudes. And that, be, that speaks of a of a, the formation of Christian character in the life of a disciple. And it is, uh, it is a code of ethics, if you will, necessary for disciples and necessary for ministry. It was important then, it continues to be important today. Jesus is calling for spiritual formation, uh, which is in reality the expression of Christ in our daily lives. I want to bring this forward into our context at this time because these disciples, Jesus is clearly telling them, and you get this from the very out, 
the very moment as, as he begins to teach, he's clearly telling them, you are going to be different people from the rest of the culture that is around you. You are going to be different. You are going to act differently. You're going to think differently. You're going to process issues and all of these other things very differently than those that are around you. And that goes for today too, of course. These disciples are going to be different. And they're going to be recognized as such because of their behaviors, because of their attitudes and many other things that would, that would fall into that category. So basically, Jesus is saying, I want these beatitudes to be a kingdom reality that is being demonstrated in your life on a daily basis. Now, I'm going to tell you something right now that's very important, and you need to understand this. This isn't something that I read today and say, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Okay, I will do that. That's fine to say that, but you cannot do that on your own accord. This takes the power and the work of the Holy Spirit inside your life to generate that that form of meekness and that strength that God desires to, for us to be walking in. This is not something that I just say, I will put this on and tuck it into my coat or whatever it is. It's something that God is doing and generating the strength and the power to do. The Beatitudes become the anchor work of Christ and the power of God working in a person's life. Jesus is saying to these disciples, essentially he's saying this, he says, watch and listen to what I am doing, and then I want you to go out and do it yourselves. You'll become the model of what it is <clears throat> to serve Christ and to walk in Christ. Now, these four verses of my text, I believe, summarize the function of believers in this world. And, and I can actually reduce this to probably one word. We're talking about influence here. How do I influence? Folks, how do I influence my culture for Jesus Christ? A culture that doesn't really understand Christ, doesn't really understand the principles of God or much of anything about God. How do I do that? How do I go about becoming an influencer of my neighbors, of the people around me, of the people I do business with, all of these things. How do I go about that? And I think what we're going to find here is we, in, in, this, in this instruction of Jesus here in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to discover those things. President Woodrow Wilson, and this goes back to the beginning of the 1900s when he was president of the United States, tells of a story of going to a barber shop. This is when presidents actually walked out of the White House, would go down the street to a barber shop. I mean, you can't do that today. <laughs> I mean, that would virtually be impossible. But in those days, it was different. He said, I was sitting in the barber's chair when I became aware of a powerful personality who had entered the room. He also sat down in the barber chair next to me and quietly spoke to the man who was cutting his hair. And before my haircut was finished, I became aware that I had just attended 
an evangelistic service because Mr. Dwight L. Moody had sat down in that chair. The people in the room did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts. And I left that barber shop as if I'd left a place of worship. That's what we're talking about this morning. My presence, your presence, your, your, your particular, when you walk into a place, we need to be the kind of people that is going to elevate the people in there. It's going to elevate the conversation that might be going on. It's going to change the atmosphere, even if it's just for a moment or two. But it changes this thing, and, and people recognize there's something tremendously different about you and who you are. The world needs salt because it's corrupt. And it needs light because it is dark. We are looking at the disintegration of life at almost every point, and we're observing the breakup in this particular time that we live. Jesus also saw this and said what is needed is salt to stem the tide of corruption. He saw people whose lives were wrapped in the gloom, sitting in the darkness, and said, they need the light. Sit the light on a pedestal so it lights up the entire room. That's what he was telling his disciples. And then following this teaching on salt and light, he talks about 14 other things that is contained in the Sermon on the Mount. This is not a 14-part sermon, believe me. I don't have the breath for that or the time, and neither do you. But follow me. We're going to take a quick walk here this morning. Open your Bibles again to Matthew 5 and, and walk with me just for a few moments this morning. Because in verses 17 through 20, Jesus is talking about the moral superiority of the religious leaders of his day, which would be the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes, no doubt. These people are known commodities in Jesus' day. People knew who they were. There was no doubt as to who a Pharisee was. They saw themselves as superior to everybody else. They had no expectation of a Messiah. And because of this so-called moral superiority, they had also lost touch with the compassion for people. We see that lived out in the, uh, in the uh, story of the Good Samaritan. Two religious leaders walked by, didn't want to do any, I don't want anything to do with that guy. And a Samaritan walks by and takes care of the need. They had lost touch. In verses 21 through 26, we're speaking about anger here. Let me ask you, what do I gain when I... Let me ask you this. This is an important question. Because we've all faced it. We all deal with it. And we're dealing, we're dealing with this on a daily basis now. But what, uh, what do I gain when I <clears throat> sit in front of a television, sit and get mad at something and become indignant? If you need to, go ahead and you can have your moral moment if that's what it takes. But you have failed to see... Folks, you fail to see. These people are blind. Their souls are dark. They don't know any better. 
I watch this stuff sometimes, and I've seen it, you've seen it. I've watched these people demanding their rights to abort their children. Makes my blood boil. Demanding this, wrecking police cars, throwing stuff through shop windows, and I become angry. But I have to realize, you've got to, folks, you've got to realize these people are walking in darkness. They don't know any better. They don't understand what God in their life can do in their life. They don't get it. I get upset on them. And I know I've had my moral moments, <laughs> like you and like all of us probably, but I've got to understand there is, they are blinded and their souls are darkened. These are people who have sold out to a bill of goods, but deep down, I'm convinced of this deep down and the inside of them, there is, a, there, is a, there is an emptiness, there is a lostness. If all they hear from people if all they hear from people, that I'm going to show them the light of judgment. If I'm going to scream at them the judgment instead of the hope and the love of God, I, I, am I going to win the day? Not at all. Not at all. Listen to me, folks. Judgment is coming. And I don't need to remind them of that every time I see them. I do not want to be the person that's standing in front of them and screaming at them and say, if you knew the Ten Commandments like I knew the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't be doing this stuff. Folks, they don't even know what you're talking about. They have no clue, no idea, no comprehension whatsoever. And yet, I do not want to be guilty of driving a wedge into that person's life because of my own personal moral indignation and yelling at their lifestyle, even though I detest it. In verses 27 through 30, Jesus is talking about sexual purity and the purity of the heart. Here, he speaks of this. I want to ask you a question. Is there any difference between someone who is against porn? And I hope that everybody in here would be it would be against it. Is there any difference between somebody who is against porn and some of the things that we watch on television? I'm talking about the enormous amount of tolerance that many accept, and we do so, and we call it entertainment. And it's a lie, and we make concession. And all the while, our minds are, our, our, our minds are continually being numbed by what we see and how we process this. I believe there's a resonant power of the Holy Spirit, folks, that will help you to scatter darkness simply because you are a person of light and that becomes a lifestyle in your life. Kind of quiet in here. Jesus tells us in verse 31 and 32, he talks about the sacredness of marriage and our vows. Jesus talks in 38 and 42 about revenge. 
He talks in 43 through 48 about loving enemies. Money seems to be a big subject in chapter 6. Jesus teaches about giving to the needy and about money and possessions. About 10 days ago, Paul Allen, the co-founder of Microsoft, who is a man worth billions of dollars, passed away at the age of 65. I have no idea where Paul Allen stood with God. I have no idea, and I'm not suggesting a judgment. But I can tell you this, if Paul Allen could speak to you this morning, I can tell you he would have something different to say about the billions of dollars. That was a part of his life. In chapter 7, Jesus speaks about what we call the golden rule. He talks about the narrow gate of salvation. He speaks in verse 15 about a tree and its fruit and about the true disciples that exhibit the fruit of that tree. Let's uh, make sure we're understanding something very important here. These people all around us have souls that have gone dead. Souls that have gone dead because of the things that people have given themselves to. Look, you give yourself to something over a period of time and you become like that in, in, in whatever it is. You, become, you take on those characteristics. You take on those things. And they become a part of your life. And there, there is a deadening. There is a deadening in our soul and our response to God. There's a lot of good people running around in our neighborhood right around this church. They're good people. But they have given themselves to many things in their lives. And these things have consumed their lives. And as they have, their, <clears throat> their souls have become numb. Their souls have become distant. And when they come into a service like this or something, there is, uh, there is the generation power of the Holy Spirit that oftentimes speaks into them and touches their lives and even can penetrate the hardness and the, the insensitivity or the numbness of their life. And that makes them pretty nervous. But sometimes it draws them right to Christ. It draws them to the Savior. And it draws them to, back to healing and back to hope and all of these other things. So what are we to do? I think Jesus says something very important. <clears throat> In Matthew chapter 12, verse 20, just one verse, and actually it's, uh, he's repeating a prophetic word from the Old Testament. He says this, a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench. That's a description of many, many people in our, our day. They are a bruised reed. Talk to people who do a lot of counseling, and, and I will tell you that they are dealing with people who are bruised, and they've been battered around by life. They're like, a, like one of those pinballs in the machine. They're bouncing all over. And every time they hit something, there's a new bruise that, that begins to form in their lives. A bruised reed. Jesus said, I'm not going to break that. I'm going to bring healing to it. A wick that's almost out. You know what happens when a candle wick is almost out? What it does starts to smoke a lot, doesn't it? 
It's really not putting out much light. It's just putting out a lot of smoke because it's just about to the end of the line on that. They're broken, they're worn out, they're discarded. Jesus said, I'm not, gonna, I'm not pushing those people aside. I'm here to help. So here's what we do. Chapter 7, verse 24 in your Bible. It says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, and does them, I've underlined that in my Bible, will liken himself, him to a wise man who builds his house on the rock. Build on the rock, not sand. We live in a, obviously we live in a biblical and <clears throat> morally, cons- I, let me rephrase that, when we are living a biblically moral and consistent life, joyously vibrant in our walk with God and raise our families in this kind of environment. This is the starting place for winning this world one by one to Christ. You know, we ask people at the time of their child's dedication or their child's baptism, if they will raise those kids in the way of God, committing themselves to, not only personally committing themselves to Christ, but committing their family to Christ, to help their family to grow and to be nurtured in the way of God. And every time I do a dedication or a baptism, whichever, I ask those parents to respond with just two words, I will. I've been long enough in this church to know that I kind of wonder sometimes when they say those words, I will, if they didn't have their fingers crossed. I see sometimes kids turning away. And I'm telling you, nothing grieves me more. I feel compelled to speak about this today. There are parents who have left the spiritual assignment of raising their kids. The Sunday school teachers, kids church workers, youth pastors. I thank God for all three of those. But God said, you are responsible. He said that to mom and dad. He didn't say that to the youth pastor. He said, mom and dad, you're responsible. There are no substitutes for parents. And quite honestly, if we can't get it done in our own family, I'm not exactly sure how we're going to get it done in the world. There's nothing more powerful. There is absolutely nothing more powerful than for your children to see you living 
happily, loving them, committing to them, understanding God's values for their life. Remembering what Moses said in Deuteronomy 6, he said, look, when you go out for a walk, teach your kids about God. When you sit down at the kitchen table, teach your kids about God. When they go to bed at night, teach your kids about God. This is serious, folks. I don't want to see our teenagers head off to college. And I'm telling you, some of them are. And they start losing out with God right away. I don't want to see that. And I ask every parent in here of a son or a daughter, institute that in your family right now. Don't wait for Christmas or Thanksgiving. Do it. Do it with joy. I'm not talking about sitting down at the supper table and having a Sunday school lesson. You, should, you know that. But there are life things that happen every day in my life, in that teenager's life, and there is a spiritual connection. Connect the dots, okay? Start helping connect those dots and see if that doesn't start making a huge difference. I pray and hope that when they come into adulthood with a full persuasion, this is the real Christian life. Why? I saw mom and dad model it. I saw them. Saw them how they handled tough things. Saw them handle how it went, didn't go very good. Saw what they did with whatever. And I can tell you, you you're going to send a kid out the door. I should say a young adult out the door. And you're going to send them out with a set of values and a model that they can understand and that will help them because I can guarantee you as soon as the door closes they are going to be faced with temptations they are going to be faced with decisions that they need to be making immediately and because you have infused their life with the good things of God and you have modeled that for them. I believe they'll make the right decisions. And they'll follow godly pathways. The way to win the position of trust in a community or anything else is not raised trying to express how offended you are because of the moral decline, but start caring enough for your neighbors. And when they find out you're a follower of Jesus and you care for them, I think some people are going to be pretty surprised. I really do. There are a lot of people that are going to be surprised that church people really do care for people, not just for the little bunch that they hang with. However, I do have an agenda. 
and that's to live for Christ and, and to express his love. We reflect the values of God and not just to pound it into the people that are around us. Let me believe some. I believe we're going to win more people to Jesus Christ, not by shining the light into their eyes so that they squint, but by being the light so that they see it, so that they actually see it rather than being blinded by it. Listen to me carefully, saints. If we fight the world in its darkness in the public arena and not have been the, the prayer arena, then we're going to have trouble and we will likely alienate our audience. However, if we will love the world and allow our light to simply shine, then they'll be tired of the darkness, they'll be tired of the evil, they'll be tired of the emptiness of the shadows that they live their life in. And they'll want to come to the light. Jesus said, be the light of the world. Be the light of the world. It's not words, it's something we do. Nicodemus in John chapter 3 came on a dark night to Jesus. I am so convinced that Nicodemus ran onto somebody who was the light. I'm convinced that Nicodemus was tired of all the religion that he'd been that had been poured into him religion without hope religion without any sense and meaning and he comes to Jesus and he begins that conversation and there was transformation of that Pharisee's life he was a new person when he walked out of that alley I'm convinced that woman in John chapter 4 that Jesus ran onto at a well. Society had not been good to her. Her life was a mess. She'd tried relationships. She'd tried religion. But she hadn't tried life. And Jesus simply said, I'm life. Put me on and you'll never thirst again. And it changed her life. Folks, the Bible says she went back to town and she said, I found somebody who told me everything about me. Come and see, this is the Messiah. And that was a pretty dark neighborhood. But it was a life-changing moment for this woman. We live in a world, folks, that does need the Ten Commandments. But what are we going to do when they take the Ten Commandments out of everything? They pull down every statue, every cross, burn down every church. What do we do then? We're going to do like the disciples did in their day. We're going to do like saints today continue to do and continue, some of them even as martyrs, we're going to live it out in front of them. And they'll come to Christ. Donnelly, would you return, please? That's how it's going to work. Jesus became flesh. The Bible says he became flesh and dwelt among us. Finally, finally, God was with us. And we saw him. 
We could shake his hand. We could touch him. We heard him speak to us. He became flesh and dwelt among us. So I tell you, saints of God, here at Faith Community Church, let us be the flesh of Christ that will dwell upon people all over this community. You're going to see people this week and you're going to come in contact with people this week that I will never see, I will never know. I don't know them, but you do. You see them. You'll be in contact with them. And you can become the primary influence of God in their life. You can be that light that's set on a pedestal. It's going to begin to light up the darkness of their life and of their soul. You can be the salt that begins to deal with the corruption that's around them and take the numbness out of their soul and cause a little bit of life to grow back into it. I saw a picture just yesterday, and I wish, I, I wish I'd include that in my PowerPoint this morning. I'm sure it could be found again. I don't know how to do it, but it was a picture of an old stump in a field, just an old stump. Somebody sawed the tree down, and it looked like it sawed it down quite a while ago. And right in the middle of that stump, you know, it had been starting to rot a little bit. Probably some dirt kind of flew into it or whatever. Right in the middle of that stump, there was another little tree that was starting to grow. And I thought, man, I wish I'd have got that this morning. I wanted you to see it. See, that's what God does. He causes things to grow where there is no life. He brings life. Stand with me, would you please? Father, I thank you today for your word. Your word is uh, mighty, it's powerful. There's no question about it. Sometimes when we're confronted with your word, it, it, it has a certain amount of shock value. Sometimes it causes us to really kind of wake up and start examining ourselves and where we are, how we're living, what we're doing. And that's exactly what I pray will happen in this church. I pray that you'll use this message to motivate us, to stir our hearts, to really walk with you. Help us to not make up a bunch of excuses things like that, why we can or can't or whatever. But Father, I pray that we will instead form a commitment today. This is who we will be. We will walk with Christ. We will walk with him. We will begin to employ these words from this mighty message that we call the Sermon on the Mount, we will begin to employ them fully in our lives. Father, I pray, may the power of the Holy Spirit now take those words, activate them in people's lives, help them to understand how it operates, help them, help each one of us. Father, I think we can all do a whole lot better, and I just pray that you'll help us do that. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.
Let's lift our hands, shall we? For the blessing of God. Father, may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon our lives and be gracious unto us. Father, lift up your countenance upon us and upon our families, upon the labor and the work that we will be doing this week. May we be the salt of the earth and be the light of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.